This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury. This, of course, is Matt Splained. Science. The final frontier. These are the voyages of the Matsplained enterprise. To seek out new life and the future of civilizations. To cheesily go where many people have repeated similar words before. That nonsense signals that Matt Armitage is back for Science's Slick and has spent all of his free time streaming reruns, clearly. I assume that that um, awful intro signals that the first story is about some kind of entertainment. Well, yes, to that point about streaming reruns, you know, I do seem to be watching a lot of things that I've watched before. Partly, I think that's because, you know, we all feel trapped in this groundhog day of a pandemic. But sometimes it's easier to watch something too uh, familiar than it is to tax your brain with anything else. But Mm. in my case anyway, you know, part of it is to do with the popularity of non-English language content on the streaming platforms. As I've mentioned before on the show, I have a, a bit of an issue with reading text and vertigo. So that makes foreign language content problematic because I can't watch the subtitles. And mm. there's been a raft of fantastic non-English language shows, you know, just coming up and up over the last few years. You, you know, you, you can watch the dub versions, you know. Well, sometimes I do. But, you know, like most people or, or like a lot of people rather, I very often I only get a few minutes into those episodes because something about it stops being believable. Not yeah. just that, you know, the movements of the actors' mouths and the words don't match, but also because the voices don't match the character just being <laughs> yes. screen. Or at least, you know, they don't meet your expectation of uh, the, the character. And it's not a criticism of the skill of the voice actors because generally they do a really good job. But for some reason, you don't get that same sense of immersion that you get when you're watching, say, an animation or something that's mostly uh, created with CGI, even though those shows are propelled by voice actors rather than, you know, physical actors. Yeah, I've seen the the disappointment in people's eyes when I meet them in person. You know, they say, I didn't expect you to look like that because you sound like that. Uh, But anyway, uh, now I I can feel a, a scary AI story coming on here, Matt. Yeah, that, that's probably because you've got the face of a bloodhound. But anyway, so <laughs> most of us are, are aware of the existence of deepfake technology. So technology that manipulates video and essentially puts words into someone's mouth. Uh, one of the most famous or rather internet famous examples of this technology is Control Shift Face, the uh, mm. YouTube channel that puts out edits from movies where the lead actors are substituted for one another. So Jim Carrey becomes Jack Nicholson, for example. And in the political sphere, we're starting to see manipulated video, especially for demonstration purposes, putting words into politicians' mouths. Uh, So far, I don't think we've seen too much uh, successful disinformation using this approach. Is that because it's still mostly uh, an emerging tech? Well, yeah, what we can do is absolutely amazing, but it's not sophisticated enough to fool us, or at least most of the time, as yet. It's Mm. still a bit like looking at a human-looking robot. Our attention gets drawn to the small percentage of things that aren't right, rather than 
the large percentage of things that are. So it's probably not a surprise that a film production company is trying to bring this technology to the industry, not in that role of being a deep fake, but to actually improve the experiences of audiences watching that dubbed entertainment content. Because, you know, I fully acknowledge how spoiled I am. I'm a native English speaker. So the content industry, Hollywood, the world of blockbusters and entertainment operates largely to my benefit. But that bias towards English in terms of the production of content means that hundreds of millions, perhaps billions of people, are left watching subtitles or the best efforts of local voice actors and translators to create an experience that they can enjoy in their own language. This is the company, uh, Flawless, that released a, a video of Robert De Niro speaking German and Tom Hanks speaking Japanese amongst other languages, right? Yeah, if you haven't seen it, do search for it. So what the company Flawless has done is partner with researchers in Germany to create a neural net and artificial intelligence that analyzes movie footage to combine the facial expression and movements of the actors. It does the same with the voice actor creating the foreign language track, so it's analyzing that person too. And then it merges the two of them together, so the face of, say, Robert De Niro appears to deliver the lines naturally, as though he's a native German or Japanese or Malay speaker. And the new version of the movie is then digitally stitched together. The results from the trailer that the company has put out are a little bit varied. So Robert De Niro is great in German. Uh, watching Tom Hanks speaking fluent Japanese is really, really strange. Uh, mm. But Jack Nicholson's courtroom scene from A Few Good Men done in French, that seemed slightly less believable to me, but that could be because I'm a little bit more competent in French than I am in either German or Japanese. Do you have any level of competence in Japanese? Well, it's funny you say that because if this technology takes off, then it's quite possible that I will. One thing that the company Flawless hasn't spoken about, at least as far as I'm aware, is about framing those foreign language lines in the original actor's voice. So what we've seen with existing deepfake audio technology is uh, neural nets that have analyzed a database of, say, speeches by Barack Obama or Donald Trump. You know, typically these kind of systems rely on someone that has a large body of work that can be analyzed to recreate their speech patterns, their tone, their mannerisms. So people like politicians, of course, actors, but also I would imagine people in any broadcast environment. So that would include people like you and me. Mm. And of course, we put out that episode last year that contained AI versions of our own voices that spoke words that we typed. So I do wonder how long it will be before we can square that circle and take the performance of those foreign language voice actors, but process it into the tone and add the speech mannerisms of the original actors. Are you worried about the ethical concerns of this? Well, with AI, we always have to be worried about the ethical concerns, not so much with the technology that Flawless is marketing, because that has a specific purpose. The issue comes when the technology is used beyond that specific purpose. It's mm. virtually impossible to limit technology to a specific case use. With all the intellectual property in the world, other AI researchers are going to come up with competing ways of 
doing what someone else has created. And I think this is where we get into that odd world that we've partially explored before, which concerns the rights actors have over the use of their image and their words. And we used the example of Will Smith in Gemini Man, where the studio owns the rights to the digital Will Smith. There's a version of himself that he doesn't own. Now, that's not to say that there aren't limits on how the studio or the production companies can exploit his digital voice and image. We've spoken before about uh, Roy Orbison, Tupac Shakur, uh, Montserrat Caballé, Amy Winehouse, and more artists being resurrected in holographic form for uh, afterlife concerts. Mm. There was uh, also news back in 2019 that James Dean was going to be digitally resurrected for a Vietnam War movie called Finding Jack. Of course, James Dean died years before the uh, Vietnam War even became a US conflict, but that movie doesn't seem to have materialized as yet. And then, of course, there's the immortal Carrie Fisher constantly returning to the Star Wars franchise. Right. So you use the example of the two of us. Uh, and of course, this relates equally to anyone who regularly speaks to camera and puts any kind of footage on their social feeds. Could any one of us become one of these digital avatars? Well, theoretically, but I don't think it's anything that we have to get too worried or worked up over at this point in time. You can imagine this kind of technology being used by, say, more repressive governments. Let's say you arrest or disappear a dissident. This kind of technology could make it appear that that person had simply gone on holiday or on mm. retreat, you know, posting social media posts. But I think these would be extreme cases because there's still an awful lot of work involved in creating any kind of deep fake. Of course, technology advances and those difficulties will erode, but I don't think it's a big concern at this point. Can we have an AI story that doesn't want me to make me lock myself in a cupboard? Well, the last story was mostly good. You know, as I think the uh, flawless trailer says, that technology means we get to watch all these movies instead of reading them. And that's a good thing. So this next story is also on the subject of reading. This is about AI that is helping people to write. So I dictated the notes for today's story using one of those AI systems that processes my words and turns them into text. Aha. Uh -huh. I can always tell because there are chunks of it you forget to edit and, and they make no sense. As though any of this made sense anyway. <laughs> but, you know, this is the point of the, the next story. Those transcribing services not only have to recognize my words as I speak them, but they have to try and put some context into them as well. So those simple differences between the number two going to somewhere or something mm. that is too much two, two, and two. And Richard can see from my notes how my computer has mangled that last statement. And two, two, and two. Yeah, you're all over the place. All over the place, Matthew. Well, how much easier would it be if the AI could just read our thoughts? Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not so sure about that. I'm already a little bit worried about, you know, uh, talking to myself whilst I'm asleep. I don't want something else to be reading my thoughts. I thought this was supposed to be something less scary. Well, I can see you while you sleep, but Stop uh, it. <laughs> not everyone has the ability to write with a pen, to type, or even to speak. 
That's what Jamie Henderson and his colleagues at Stanford University are working on, a neural network that recognizes signals from the brain of the person who imagines that they're writing with a pen and then converts those signals, those thoughts, into text. The team has been working with a 65-year-old man with a spinal cord injury that uh, left him paralyzed below the neck a few years ago. They implanted sensors into his brain that allow them to monitor the signals from around 200 neurons. Now, of course, there are close to 100 billion neurons in the human brain, uh, huh. a lot more than that in my brain, but, you know, I'm barely human. Uh, sure. But those 200 are enough for the neural network to detect clues as to what letters that this man imagines that he's writing. And, and let's be very clear here. It isn't reading his thoughts. Not his actual thoughts, no. Think of it more as interpreting the electronic pulses that relate to certain actions. In this case, the team had to build a synthetic data set because, of course, there was no available data set of the man imagining writing letters, mm. and his paralysis prevents that from being done. So despite these limitations, the early versions of the system turned out to be remarkably accurate. The subject could type roughly 90 characters per minute with an accuracy rate of around 94%. And that 94%, because this is being done on a smartphone, is further enhanced by the autocorrect function, which already sits on the phones. So that's as good as most of us uh, manage, and it's only slightly slower. I think most people can type around 110, 115 characters per, per minute. So that 90 is not bad. Mm. That, that said, I don't expect that I'll be using my brain to create scripts anytime soon, uh, although people have often described these shows as brainless. But uh, this tool, as a, a communication aid for people with physical or neurological conditions that makes it hard for them to write or communicate, this is something that has enormous potential to, to transform and improve their lives. Unfortunately, uh Matt isn't done with the body hacking. Uh, more on AI, implants, and enhancements after the break here on Matt Splain on BFM 89.9. Before Friday materializes, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, The Business Station. My name is Rich Bradbury. This is Matt Splained. Before the break, uh, we were talking about development, uh, developments in brain computing interfaces that are enhancing our communication skills. Um, what other body mods have you got for us, Matt? And keep it family friendly. Well, this is a story I got from Ars Technica, in which researchers uh, are developing prosthetic limbs that include the sensation of touch. So prosthetic limbs have come a long way over the last few decades, but as we've moved from systems that are activated by muscles to those that are activated by electronic impulses from our nerve endings, and of course the, the most recent ones which are activated by signals from the brain, one thing that they've had in common is that they rely on our visual senses. Somebody fitted with a robotic arm or hand has to actually watch that limb to know that they've grasped something or picked something up. We right. don't have that sensory feedback that we take for granted. 
and with granular tasks, uh, you know, the one we usually use is the the one of picking up an egg because it's a fragile object. There's a lot of guesswork involved in terms of how much pressure should be applied. More modern systems, of course, have sensors that can create some kind of sensory feedback. But but it's not the same kind of feedback that we get from the sensation of touch. No, typically those uh, sensations, which I use in inverted commas, were applied to a patch of skin and the user would have to learn what each kind of signal, what kind of sense it related to. So right. learning a new sensory input. And similar to that writing technology that we mentioned before the break, we've moved on to prosthetic limbs that are controlled by sensors uh, in the brain interpreting signals. So you think about picking the egg up and the prosthetic arm picks up the egg. Researchers at the University of Pittsburgh have come up with a new system that produces the sensation of something touching the palm and the fingers. How do they determine how effective the new arm is? Well, the test subject, uh, again, it's a guy who's been paralysed for some time. He's been using a robotic arm for the last couple of years, so he was already pretty skilled. Uh, He can do all the basic tasks like uh, manipulating the, the arm and picking up items, you know, all the normal stuff. So they concentrated on tasks with the sensation system switched on and then with it switched off. The participant was able to do around 12 tasks with the sensation system switched on in the same time as it took him to do nine tasks using sight alone with that switched off. And the biggest improvement was in that mechanism of gripping. The feedback made it much simpler to grasp an object securely, you know, lift it and transport it and put it back down. So at the moment, this is a a prototype with a single test subject. It's not ready to be released as a medical device. But even at these early stages, Uh, done with a single test subject, you can see how much impact a system like this could have in the development of the next generation of artificial and prosthetic limbs. See, that wasn't so bad at all, was it? It wasn't wasn't threatening. Um, Have you got time for one more uh, prosthetic uh, related story? I do. Um, How would you like an extra thumb? Oh, well, I'd love one. It would help me open those uh, jam jars I struggle with all the time. Oh, awesome. Well, this story is perfect for you. Uh, Danielle Claude and her fellow researchers at University College London gave uh, 32 people a prosthetic thumb that was strapped to their wrist and hand and sat underneath the little finger of the right hand, uh, if that makes any sense. So basically, they had a thumb on either side of the palm of their hand. Right. Yeah. Yep. They wore the thumb for five days. for an average of about three hours per day. And they were encouraged to use the thumb in everyday life as well as while doing the laboratory-style experiments. So, for example, you could uh, clench the thumb to hold a cup, uh, open marmalade jars like yourself, padding. Mm -hmm. Uh, Apparently, uh, some of the subjects used the thumb for flipping the pages of a book. And how is this thumb controlled? Well, we've mostly been talking about brain computing interfaces on today's show. So obviously, putting electrodes in the brains of healthy people just to get them to control a thumb they don't actually need is probably not ethical uh, in the same way that I'm not allowed to give 
children cat paws, for example. Uh-huh. The uh, thumb is actually controlled by the movement of the big toe. Which, huh? What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I know some people will probably find that worse and more gross than the idea of uh, electrodes in the brain. But, uh, you know, using standard wireless technology, uh, users were able to move their toe and ankle and the thumb would make corresponding gestures. Okay, we've covered the how. Um, The why is still a a big question to me. Why would anybody need a toe-run thumb? Well, I think there are a number of reasons at play here, as as well as getting someone to say toe-run thumb. Yeah, Uh, I like that. (laughs) First, we're starting to move into that era of technological body modification or enhancement. So one issue was simply that the researchers wanted to find out what the study participants would use that thumb for and how useful it would become. Mm. And then secondly, how would they train their own brains to integrate the use of that new digit into their abilities? So they're looking at what kind of uh, long-term implications that might have in terms of things like brain plasticity. So we're talking about messing with evolution in a sense because we're adding uh, digits we're adding functionality that nature hadn't designed or perhaps anticipated so the participants were given mri scans before and after the experiment and the results of the post-experiment mri showed that the participants had changed the way that they actually perceived the fingers of the right hand they saw them less as individual digits and more as a, a single unit of operation that's really interesting. Uh, um, what Were there any long-term implications? Well, a week later, 12 of the participants came back for a third MRI, and this one showed that the changes were beginning to fade. So this suggests that the brain both uh, accommodated the new digit and similarly adapted when it was removed again. So, you know, that's a really positive result. Maybe in uh, a few years' time, we'll all be wiggling our feet to turn the page of a book or uh, grab that macchiato with our extra thumb. Uh, There may even be some uh, tweens with cat paws if I get my license back. It also uh, gives more credence to the phrase, if you don't use it, you lose it, right? (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Can we not talk about AI and creepy stuff anymore? What else have you got? Well, okay. Um, I I guess that means I have to junk the story about microscopic submarines powered by sunlight that break down pollutants in water, because although that's a a good thing, it is slightly creepy. Uh, Uh You can just Google that one. Uh, If you do Google it, there's an outside chance that you may be doing so on Internet Explorer. So Explorer's star has faded in recent years. So Chrome, Firefox, Safari, and plenty of others have become the kind of go-to web tools for most of us. Uh, but I, Internet Explorer, I mean, it's how many of us uh, of a certain age first browsed the internet. Uh, unless, of course, you were on AOL, in which case you weren't actually on the internet in the first place. But mm. Internet Explorer has been with us for an amazing 25 years. It's been around since the 19, well, the mid-1990s. And the kind of legal case that we're currently seeing between Epic Games and Apple about access to the App Store, this was the kind of battle that we saw Microsoft fighting against other browser manufacturers in the 90s who alleged that by bundling Explorer with the uh, the Windows uh, operating system that the company was engaging in anti-competitive practices. Um, 
So when was the last time you remember using Internet Explorer? You know, I, I think it was probably in the early 2000s. And I think that was only because I had to use somebody else's uh, PC at the time. It's the same for me. I mean, it's got to be at least a decade, and like you, probably more. Um, even Microsoft itself essentially replaced Explorer with the Edge browser back in uh, 2016. Uh, now, I have to say, I don't think I've ever seen, let alone used Edge, but uh, they have continued to support Internet Explorer, but not to uh, introduce new features. Um, why are we talking about Internet Explorer? Well, because Microsoft is actually retiring it as of June the 15th, it will disappear from most standard Windows 10 editions, although it will live on through Windows Server and some other Microsoft platforms for a little while longer. If you're wondering what will happen to all those uh, Explorer-configured sites and apps, well, Edge has an Internet Explorer mode that allows you to access all of those legacy sites. But, uh, you know, Edge is a lot more secure than Explorer, so there's really no reason for, for not upgrading and moving up or, or choosing Firefox, Chrome, or any one of those half a dozen other alternative browsers. But mm. it is quite a sad day. It's like the day Adobe switched off Flash. You know, like most people, I hated Flash. I hated Internet Explorer. But they summed up that era of digital technology. Yeah, for sure. It feels like, you know, your um, favorite uncle almost has been retired. Uh, you know what I mean? I, I was a, more of a, a Netscape Navigator kind of fella, uh, I remember back in the day. But you know, there, there were times when Internet Explorer was that browser that you had to use to access certain websites. So to know that it's just been switched off and just been thrown away, it is quite sad. Well, also, you know, we, we forget as well that, you know, we... You know, like you, I used uh, Navigator, but uh, uh, when I was out of the house, if I if I had to pop in anywhere to a, uh, an internet cafe, gosh, when was the last time you said internet cafe? Wow. If you had to pop in, you know, to access your email or anything like that, it was typically through uh, Internet Explorer. So this yeah. is like 25 years of history being switched off. Explorer was how I first explored the web. Hotmail was my first webmail. You know, we have all of these relics and mementos of our, our past, those physical photos, those cassette tapes or vinyl or CDs, you know, our, our VHS, our DVD, laser discs. Uh, I think I've even got the uh, CD-ROMs of Carmageddon and Doom hanging around somewhere. But, um, you know, what physical reminders do I have of Internet Explorer? All of those endless hours spent on dial-up, waiting for a web page to load, uh, JPEGs revealing themselves line by line. Uh, that's photos of cat paws, in case you were thinking I was looking at anything <laughs> else. Uh, it does make me wonder, though, you know, what mementos that the truly digital generations will keep from their lives? You know, what happens if Insta or TikTok are, are eventually switched off? What will that generation choose as their physical treasures from a, a digital world that is constantly evolving and deleting their history. Ah, food for thought. Thanks very much for that, Matt. Thank you. Pleasure. Now, uh, you can find Matt on Instagram and Twitter. He's at CultureMatt. You can also head over to culturepop.com for transcripts of these shows and information about CulturePop and its consulting services. 
Uh, for BFM 89.9, I'm Rich Bradbury. And if you missed any part of the show, don't forget you can download the podcast. It's available via the BFM app, which is available in the Apple App Store or Google Play. This is BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.